Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's special show is a continuation of the first installment of my new series, Forensics, Dr. Judy Investigates. I'm using my expertise as a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist to take a deep dive into the psychology behind the hugely popular Netflix docuseries, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. This docuseries explores the story of Elisa Lam, a young Canadian woman who disappeared from the Cecil Hotel in downtown LA and weeks later was found drowned in the hotel water tank. Her death was ruled a tragic accident, and yet people couldn't accept it. This fascinating docuseries takes a look at the CISO Hotel's dark history, the events that unfolded in the days leading up to Elisa's death, LAPD's investigation, and that of the internet sleuths, and it also spotlights the intense public reaction people had to Elisa's story. I was honored to be featured on this program, and the feedback from all of you has been so overwhelming that I decided to do this exclusive series on my podcast to go behind the crime scene and take you on this journey to uncover the psychology behind why this fascinating case has gripped the nation. In the first episode of this three-part series that aired last week, I looked at three of the most critical themes of this case. One, why are people so taken with Elisa Lam's story? And what is the psychology behind conspiracy theories? Two, what did Elisa's personal Tumblr blog reveal about her mental health? I hand-selected some of her posts and talked about what she may have been experiencing with regards to her symptoms. I also explained some common misconceptions about mood disorders and little-known facts about diagnoses and treatment. And last, I share details about the autopsy report that help explain why Elisa's bipolar disorder was noted to be a significant contributing factor in her death. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode, I encourage you to go back and check that one out first, and then come back to this one. In today's episode, I am so thrilled to talk to the award-winning director of the Netflix series, Joe Berlinger. I'm so excited to reconnect with him again after working with him on this program. And for those of you who've seen this series, you'll notice that his fresh approach to this genre has brought out some incredible social justice themes and lessons we can all take to heart about mental health, stigma and perceptions, and our innate need for human connection and purpose. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about making this show that has become such a cultural phenomenon. In the final episode of this series, which will air next week, I will do a special Q&A where I answer all of your burning questions about this case. I'll also break down a systematic, science-backed plan to building better mental health. These will be my supercharged tips about how you can take care of your mental health and the mental health of the people you love and in your community. We're going to get to my interview with the amazing Joe Berlinger next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. 
I'm so excited about my guest today. I have the phenomenal Joe Berlinger. He is an Emmy award-winning and Academy Award-nominated filmmaker and producer who has been a leading voice in nonfiction film and television for over two decades. He has produced and directed multiple dozens of projects, and his work has garnered him over 83 award wins and an additional 34 nominations to date. Joe is a true pioneer in the genre of true crime documentaries, and his work draws attention to social justice issues in the United States and abroad. There are so many amazing projects I can mention, but for now, here's a very short list. Joe is well known for his amazing landmark work on Brothers Keeper and the Paradise Lost trilogy, which garnered him an Academy Award nomination and multiple Emmy Award wins. His revelatory work highlighting the issues of oil pollution in the Amazon rainforest in the documentary Crude won him 22 Human Rights Environmental and Film Festival Awards. Joe also spearheaded and directed two projects centered on the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy, including the Netflix four-part docuseries Conversations with a Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes. And of course, he is the director of the number one program on Netflix right now, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. His work has also explored cultural icons, including one of my favorite icons, Metallica, and he's directed and produced six seasons of the critically acclaimed Sundance Channel series, Iconoclast. And he also directed and executive produced the first two seasons of the Emmy-nominated series, Masterclass, for the Oprah Winfrey Network. Joe is also a philanthropist. He serves on multiple boards, including the Rehabilitation Through the Arts and also Proclaim Justice, a nonprofit dedicated to providing resources and building awareness around wrongful convictions. I'm so pumped to speak to him today. So welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, so nice of you to have me. And that was such a nice intro. I was looking over my shoulder, wondering who that person was, but it sounded good. <laughs> uh, well, it's so great to connect I, with you again. But I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm a little nervous because it's it's rare that somebody I've interviewed for one of my shows now turns the tables and interviews me. So now now I, I, now I know what it's like to be in the hot seat. Now you get to be in the hot seat. You get to be on the other side. And I had such a great time participating in this series. I remember that we went to a nearby hotel to the Cecil to yeah. actually film my portion of my contributions. And uh, it was a pretty seedy place. It was uh, pretty dark. The bathroom was barely working. You know, I had some uh, funny Funny memories from that time right before we were hit, of course, with the pandemic, but it was just so wonderful to work with you and your staff. And of course, now this program has just hit this crazy level of cultural phenomenon. Everyone is talking about it. I'm getting dozens of calls and emails a day about it. Um, and I just wanted to first just open up with what do you think about the reaction and what are some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, first of all, you were a delight to have. You were a trooper. That was kind of a gnarly set that we were on because we were <laughs> going to give the ambiance of the Cecil. Um, you know, we weren't actually allowed to film at the hotel because it was it was closed. But uh, we we did our best to do, you know, exterior shooting at the Cecil. And then the interior was down the block. And uh, you were very important. I was so glad you said yes, because, you know, the the way this story has been told in the past is just, you know, to kind of go and lean into the paranormal and the spooky ghost story aspect of it. And I, we really didn't want to do that because A, it's been done before and B, it's really disrespectful, I think, to the victim, Elisa Lamb, to dismiss her story or her tragedy as a ghost story. So your forensic 
analysis, you know, psychological analysis was so important so that people could understand what she was going through so that we could raise the issue of mental illness and all the things that you brought to the show. So uh, we were thrilled you said yes. And I think, you know, you, you really helped us elevate what we were doing. So I appreciate it. Um, I, I'm amazed at the reaction. Um, you know, you said in your intro, we were the number one show. We, I think we may be dipping out of the number one show, but the first 10 days, uh, <laughs> it was insane. I'm not allowed yeah. to give the numbers, uh, but the numbers were shared with me and they're pretty uh, amazing. Uh, just how many people have seen this film and around the world or the series uh, and around the world. You know, it's very, it's like incredible n numbers. I rem you know, in the early days of my career, you know, my first film was Brothers Keeper in 1992. It came out and we self-distributed. This is before documentaries were even remotely as popular as the, they are now. And even though the film went to the Sundance Film Festival and won a prize there, nobody wanted to release it. They didn't think anyone would be interested in these smelly old farm brothers who all share a bed together. And one was accused of murdering the other. Right. My partner, Bruce Sanofsky at the time, sadly, he, he passed away about six, actually we're coming upon six years of his, his death, which, you know, is unbelievable. But, uh, you know, Bruce and I made a number of the earlier films together. And for us, you know, we self-distributed the film after Sundance because nobody wanted it. And we had about six 35 millimeter release prints. You know, this is before digital. So you actually had it on film. And we schlepped our, our prints from theater to theater. And if 400 people in a weekend watched our movie, we thought, oh, my God, we died and went to heaven. Um, <laughs> now, you know, the number of people who are seeing this around the world is is staggering. You know, and it's great. People, you know, um, People are getting what we were trying to do and captivated by it. You know, there's a handful of snarky reviews, you know, who need to tell people why what they're watching isn't what they think it is and why we've done such a terrible thing. You know, but I think those are the times we live in. Just people have to be mean and divisive and whatever. But in terms of the popular reaction, the numbers say it all. I mean, there's there's lots of people watching it. And, you know, like you uh, I'm hearing from people I haven't heard from in ages, you know, and I put something out at least once a year, maybe every 18 months, sometimes multiple projects in a year. And I haven't gotten this kind of reaction from people like, you know, I haven't talked to in 10 years or people living in other parts of the world. Hey, I saw your show. It's so cool. I just wanted to reach out and connect and it was so great. And so I don't know, something, something seems to be working, uh, which is very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is hitting multiple chords for people, which is why we're getting this huge wave of reactions. And first of all, thank you so much for the kind words you said about my contributions. But I think as I watched the program myself, what I was so thrilled with is how much it actually imparts these very important lessons about a number of very crucial themes, some of which I've been championing essentially all of my professional life, you know, to really understand mental illness, to destigmatize that process. You know, you even talked about cyberbullying. I had less of an idea that that was going to be a huge part of this program as well, which I thought was so important, especially given these times. And actually, some of what you just said right now about a few of the naysayers that have these negative comments about the program. I mean, that's a form of cyberbullying. It's on that spectrum. But of course, then you actually highlighted 
a musician, Morbid, who had the extremes of that cyberbullying because people, for some reason, started to associate him with Elisa Lam's death, thinking that he murdered her, yet it's just because he stayed at the Cecil over a year ago and yeah, also yeah. because his music, he's death metal. I mean, he says some pretty gnarly stuff in his music. And I, I was just so brokenhearted to see that he had been affected to the point of trying to commit suicide. And I was just wondering if you can say something about that piece, because I think we are in those times. Uh, many of my patients, adults and youth alike, they are troubled by cyberbullying. Adults cyberbully other adults, absolutely. And that's part of what you talked about in your film. Yeah, you, you know, we live in very strange times, um, you know, my iPhone is, for example, is the most amazing device that, you know, I'm 59 years old. So I lived most of my life without the iPhone. And when I was a kid or a teenager, even in college, you know, um, I couldn't imagine that I could have this much connectivity, this much information at our fingertips. And yet I feel like we've never been more connected, yet more divided as people, you know, human beings. We've never had more information available at our fingertips, and yet the truth has never been more elusive. So these are things that have preoccupied me prior to, you know, doing the um, Elisa Lam story. But because the nature of truth and the nature of how we treat each other online is something that has concerned me, you know, I wanted to emphasize those elements and tell, you know, this story could have gone in a million different directions, depending on the maker. And I felt like mm -hmm. going down the road, other people have gone down of just kind of pretending there's something really inherently evil about a place. And that is why Elisa Lam, perhaps she was demonically possessed or those kinds of crazy stories. I, I felt like that does the victim a disservice. And, you, you know, you have to, you know, tell the truth about a situation. And, um, you know, most of my career, well, a lot of my career has been in the criminal justice system, in the wrongful conviction space, mm -hmm. and wrongful convictions in particular, that's all about, you know, two competing narratives, and whichever one is the most compelling ends up being the truth. And often, it's circumstantial evidence that prosecutors use without real forensic evidence to back it up that land people in jail wrongfully convicted. And so the, the show for me is very much a cautionary tale about allowing circumstantial evidence to be your guide. I mean, we've had, you know, I forgot the exact number at this point, you know, well over 400 DNA exonerations mm -hmm. uh, using DNA technology. And in many of those cases, um, you would have thought the case was rock solid, but then the DNA demonstrates it was all circumstantial evidence. So. You know, the nature of truth and the nature of cyberbullying um, and the need for people to kind of lash out at each other and be so convinced of their position is why I think as a society, we're kind of, you know, it's, it's why government is locked up. I mean, democracy is supposed to be about compromise and two sides coming together for the greater good. There is no compromise. We, we, we've retreated to our tribes. And I just, I, I think it's really a big fundamental issue that I wanted to raise in, in this show in an entertaining quote unquote way, because you have to like, you can't just lecture people. You have to give them something to chew on that they're actually going to watch. I mean, the cyberbullying thing with morbid is particularly troubling, you know, because none of the web sleuths in the show, and I think we made it clear, but I guess it wasn't clear enough for some people, none of the uh, uh, 
web sleuths in the show were responsible for intimidating and cyberbullying um, Morbid, the, the death metal person in the show. Um, and yet all the web or some of the web sleuths in the show have told us after it was broadcast that they are getting cyberbullied by people who are saying mm-hmm. you never should have done that to Morbid. There's a hashtag justice for morbid that's been created. Oh. You know, for morbid's sake, I think it's great. Morbid actually wrote me a note the other day saying he just got a record deal. His whole career has been revived. He's so happy oh. that he participated in the show. You know, I mean, even Jared Leto reached out to me wanting, he was so affected <laughs> by morbid. He wanted morbid's phone number to call him up and oh. say hello. You know, so Morbid's had a wonderful reaction to his, you know, and it took me a long time to convince him and my team, Samantha Grogan. Um, it took, you know, it took us a while to convince Morbid to um, participate, but he's, I'm thrilled he does, he did because it raised this issue of cyberbullying and the dangers of it. And I'm thrilled that, you know, it went, the, the participation in the show has kind of revived him. Um, but I'm deeply distressed that some of the other, uh, you know, web sleuths in the show are getting cyberbullied, which is so ironic because, I mean, the whole in a show in which one of the main themes is a cautionary tale about jumping to conclusions and cyberbullying people, mm. for people to then jump to conclusions and cyberbully people is a little distressing. But um, anyway, right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think it's just so common now, and it's so easy because people are just behind their computers, their screens, their phones. And it's easy just to write anything and not necessarily feel the direct consequence of what they say or do. Because, you know, back in the day when we did a lot more interacting in person, um, and certainly before phones were such a regular thing. I mean, I remember when I was in college, uh, I think I had a pager. <laughs> so I didn't have a cell phone. Um, but you know, back then, if you were to criticize somebody, you'd literally have to look at them in the eyes and you'd have to see their reaction. And then you would eventually probably have to be able to maybe, like you said, compromise a bit more, really try to understand each other's point of view. When you do something where you post something online, you literally can hide behind your screen and you can do whatever you want. And you never have to see that person suffer. You never have to see that person's reactions when they read whatever it is that you wrote. Yeah, there's 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 a troubling lack of empathy, if I had to put it down to like yeah. one word, you know, and you even see that like, uh, you know, not to go off on a rant on film reviews, but, you know, some of the reviews of the show totally like almost like they're going out of their way to misinterpret. I mean, literally the things that you said about the show and why it's so good and why I'm so proud of it, that we were sensitive to Elisa Lam and her yes. family, that we wanted to portray her as a you know, in a sensitive way and be hyper aware that she's a victim of a real crime. It's not just a story on television to make a show that raises the issue of the failures of Los Angeles policy that led to that still problematic skid row, uh, raising the issue of the stigmatization of mental illness, all the things we did in the show. It's like some reviewers have just decided to talk about it in the exact opposite way that, that we failed to do those things. And, you know, reviewers are entitled to their opinion and I don't expect any reviewer to like my work per se, you know, Mm -hmm. but to review something, you need to have a little bit of empathy for what the filmmaker was intending. And then you Mm -hmm. enter his world. You may not want to be in that world, but did I, did I do my intended uh, approach well or not? So if if it doesn't work for you, great. If you think, 
I'm fine with that. If you, you know, didn't like how I shot something, or if it was a scripted film, you didn't like the performance, whatever, but this, and it's not just, you know, uh, not just me, there's just, you know, the criticism has become like this pile on, how can I get yeah. the most outrageous headlines so people click through to me? It, it's just, it's mind boggling to me, you know? Absolutely. And speaking of the web sleuths who are now getting bullied, essentially, by all kinds of online sources, have they reached out to you? Have they spoken about how they're feeling? It's it's so terrible that they have to go through this when they had nothing to do with... Yeah, no, no, we've been in constant contact. That's how we yeah. knew about it. And we've been trying to make them, you know, feel better. And we've been taking certain actions that, you know, I, I think should remain confidential. Netflix has been <clears throat> incredibly sensitive and caring about mm -hmm. this issue and has talked uh, uh, directly with the people who've been affected. And And let me, you know, just to be clear, it's only a small minority of people who are doing this, for the most part, the reaction has been incredibly positive and supportive mm -hmm. and loving and, you know, well-intentioned, but, you know, it just takes a few rotten apples to like unnerve people, particularly, you know, I've been in the, you know, I've, I've been in the public eye for a long time. I take on controversial subjects. I'm used mm -hmm. to, I'm used to, I'm, I'm used to the, the occasional attack or takedown or whatever, but for people who, you know, have, aren't in the media and, and out of the kindness of their hearts, uh, like yourself agreed to be in the show. The last thing I want for people is to have that kind of a negative experience, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, speaking again to the fact that the show really has overwhelmingly gotten a hugely popular reaction, lots of positive reviews, lots of people saying these are important issues and we're so glad we're talking about them. And this is not the first time that you've had a project that's really hit this sort of cultural contagion. People love your work, but why do you think this specific work now, why do you think that that has captured the world at this moment? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think it has all those things. I mean, uh, uh, everyone loves a good mystery on the most basic mm -hmm. storytelling level. Um, this was a well-known story because of the viral video. So there was, you know, yeah. the trailer, when the trailer for the show uh, was released a few weeks before um, the, the, the series came out, um, I've never had, an, again, we're not allowed to give numbers, but an insane number of people watched the trailer, bigger than anything I've ever done. And, you know, pretty high in Netflix, you know, history of, of uh, unscripted show and its trailer. So clearly there was a built-in interest in the story, which is what was what attracted it, attracted me to it. You know, what was it about the story that made that elevator footage go viral? What is it about people's need to solve a mystery, you know, which mm -hmm. which is good and bad? Like it's hard to paint everybody with one broad brush, you know. The show talks about the dangers of cyber sleuthing or web sleuthing, but I I, I can't say that it's all bad, you know, uh, first of all, people are well-intentioned. Certain crimes have been assisted by armchair detectives or internet sleuths, whatever phrase you want to use. And in fact, if I go back to my original, the film, you know, the film that I guess I'm the most proud of in my career would be the Paradise Lost series because it got three wrongfully convicted people out of prison. When that film first came out in 1996, it was a fascinating phenomenon because the woman who was tasked 
at the marketing company that worked for HBO, who was going to design the poster, got an advanced screener before the movie came out. And this woman named Kathy Bakken, who's still a dear friend of mine, and her colleagues, well, she was she looked at the movie to design a poster, but was so moved by it and thought, my God, this guy is innocent. She shared it with two of her friends, a guy named Burke Sauls and another guy named Grove Pashley. And they on their own, this is in 96 before social media mm -hmm. existed, uh, what I call social media 1.0, when the internet was just being formed and people, well, not the internet, but websites and, you know, people finding, people of like-minded interests finding each other on the internet was kind of happening for the first time, you know, chat rooms and, right. you know, this websites being created. And um, so they started this website called Free the West Memphis 3. They loaded up all the information about the case that they could find. They took it upon themselves to like, you know, move, to try to help move the needle. And, you know, the films over the years, there were three of them. You know, I, we started filming during the, you know, before, like a week after these guys got arrested, covered the trials, which to, to me was just a crazy witch hunt. And then we stuck with the story for the 18 and a half years they were incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Finally, they were let out of prison. The three films, you know, are given a lot of credit for their exoneration. Um, well, actually, they're released. They're not fully exonerated, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> but um, but they, it got them off of death row and and, yeah. and out of prison. And the films do deserve credit, but the I think the real credit belongs to these regular people who yeah. started contributing to the website who, you know, literally tens of thousands of people ultimately joined this Free the West Memphis Three movement, took time out of their regular life to go down on their vacations to protest and, you know, make their voices heard during appeals hearings. And that, as much as anything, got the West Memphis Three out of prison. So I have seen very positive effects of people so fascinated by a, a, a case or being so moved by a film that they actually take it upon themselves to try to solve the mystery. Um, you know, but in this instance, I think there is a danger to jumping to conclusions, you know, which is what we tried to underscore in the show. Absolutely. And yet, as you mentioned, most of these people, certainly all the ones that you featured in your project, they were well-intentioned. They felt some kind of personal connection to Elisa's story. I think, this started because they wanted to help. But at the same time, as you mentioned, they started to kind of go down maybe certain paths that took a little attention away from what actually, of course, bore out in the end in terms of what the facts were. So I oftentimes talk about this and people have actually been asking me a lot of questions about these web slews and, you know, people get really angry. I get these DMs on my Instagram. How dare they? And it's like, well, first of all, I don't know them. Um, but second of all, they get so up in arms about why they would take up such a, a position and why they would start YouTube channels talking about Elisa. But I, I have some compassion for what they're trying to do because I know that Oftentimes it is well-intentioned. And I also think that it might be serving a deeper psychological function for the web sleuths, you know, for some personal meaning in their lives. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, because I remember particularly one of the web sleuths, he was essentially talking about a grieving process he had to go through where he had somebody go and take a picture of her gravesite, And it made him feel like, okay, now I have closure on all the time I spent in my life thinking about this person. So what were your thoughts as you spent some time with these web sleuths interviewing yeah. them and understanding I, I, th I think very similar to yours. And, um, 
you know, people are not perfect. You know, they're, you know, human beings have all sorts of dimensions to them. And I think these are all well-intentioned people who, you know, wanted to move the needle forward in this case, uh, felt a connection to somebody they never met before. You know, we live a lot of our life now online, so I can understand, you know, people wanting to make a connection that way. Um, and, and I guess that's my one big disappointment with, you know, the show's reaction. Of course, as a, you know, creative person who likes to make good stuff, whatever that means, you know, the reaction, generally speaking, has been fantastic. And, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't imagine it actually having done so well, you know, in the in terms of just the number of viewers and the, but it, it pains me that some of these people are getting, you know, criticized because that wasn't the intention. You know, the intention was to give the viewer the experience of what these web sleuths were encountering and finding mm-hmm. and then to turn it on its head to show well, actually all of those theories are incorrect, not to fault the web sleuth, but to suggest and to demonstrate and maybe it's my perspective from having spent so many time, so much time on real criminal cases, but the dangers of jumping to conclusions, like we all do in all walks of life. I mean, without revealing my politics, or I guess I can't. You know, uh, you know. <laughs> instead of saying there are seventy-four million people out there who, you know, live in an alternate reality or are selfish or this or whatever, which we all do, and those people you know, think that the left is like delusional and, you know, mm-hmm. nobody can see each other as human beings anymore. And that's, that's, that reaction to the sluice, I, I wasn't anticipating. I was trying to say, and I, you know, that there is a danger to jumping to conclusions, yes. even when something feels very tangible and real, because I've seen, you know, you pick a good murder case, like a real criminal case, and every case has certain elements to it that are head-scratchingly coincidental, like which would make a prosecutor lead them to believe that this is the person, and then they get tunnel vision and they try to find the evidence to build the case instead of understanding that there is lots of circumstantial evidence that doesn't mean anything. And, and those DNA exonerations I referred to before is like the perfect example. A lot of those cases of people have been exonerated by DNA. You would have thought the case was rock solid based on the other evidence presented, but it was just circumstantial evidence. And, and that's a danger. And admittedly, this case and, you know, had its, uh, its share of what they call synchronicities. Josh Dean calls synchronicities in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the lamb Eliza test around the time of a tuberculosis yes. break at the time that she was, you know, staying at the hotel. That's pretty weird. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the movie Dark Water that was made 10, 11 years before her disappearance, the original one in the Japanese original version. And then the U.S. version was made in 2005. So long before anyone knew mm-hmm. of Elisa Lamb you know, tells the story, you know, if you reduce the plot of Dark Water, it's almost like the Elisa Lam tragedy. So there are so many strange coincidences that make you feel like, wow, something could be amiss. But that's, that's the danger of jumping to conclusions without forensic, a word I know you, you, you believe in, (laughs) since it's, since it's in your uh, description uh, of who you are, uh, you know, without real forensic evidence to back it up. Right. 
And again, you know, I think that as you've considered your own perspective, your own advocacy work, you're a social justice filmmaker. You care deeply about these issues. You've seen what, uh, what, you know, that circumstantial evidence can do. It can hurt somebody's entire life and put them into prison with no hope of getting out, you know, and there's so many more cases like this that we may not even know about and ever get to in our lifetimes. But at the same time, you know, it's an interesting thing because, of course, everybody's talked about some of your work with the Ted Bundy tapes and also, of course, here with the uh, series that we're speaking of now, The Vanishing at CISO Hotel, and they label it as true crime, right? And we talked about this a little bit before we started the interview, but this idea of true crime, I think sometimes it has this view in the public. It's kind of salacious. It's a lot of, you know, reenactments. And yet your angle was so different, which is why I just loved this project. I'm so thankful you brought me into it. I'm so proud um, to have been a part of it. But what yeah. are your thoughts about being labeled uh, essentially a true crime filmmaker, a true crime pioneer? You know, that that's going to be synonymous with you now. Yes. Well, I like the pioneer part. You know, I've always <laughs> felt like I've been a pioneer, you know, in my filmmaking or, you know, um, and I'm very gratified that a lot of younger filmmakers have come up to me over the years and say, you know, Brothers Keeper or Paradise Lost yeah. were filmed, made them want to become filmmakers. That's always great to hear. Um, but, the, you know, so I like the pioneer part. The true crime thing does make me wince um, <laughs> because I think there is a lot of irresponsible true crime. You know, um, uh, I think if you are just wallowing in the misery of somebody else's tragedy without some larger social commentary or without making some deeper point, um, you know, it, that stuff does make me nervous and seems to be more popular than ever. And, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to do that stuff or be associated with it. Um, you know, unfortunately, my work is often misunderstood and, and, and thrown into that category. You know, the Ted Bundy tapes was obviously extremely, I shouldn't say obviously, obviously to you because you know, but the, the Bundy tapes were were very popular um, and a lot of people understood what I was doing, but a lot of people were like, gee, you're giving, um, you're giving voice to a serial killer. You're giving a serial killer a platform. Where's the victim in all this? And there is some, there is some truth to that balance. What's the balance between victim and killer and all that stuff? But the whole reason I wanted to do the Ted Bundy tapes, and I'll, I'll defend it to my, to my last breath, is when I was debating doing both the scripted movie with Zac Efron and the, the Netflix docu-series. And it is bizarre I did both in the same year, and it sounds like that was some master plan, but I won't bore your listeners on this particular discussion. Maybe you'll have me back for part two or whatever, but um, <laughs> since I'm so long-winded, I wasn't intending to do the two of them simultaneously. It just was a big coincidence. It's an interesting story for another time. But um, before I embarked on both projects, I asked my, I had college-aged, I have, well, they're no longer in college, but at the time they were college-aged daughters. Um, and I asked them, you know, do you know who Ted Bundy is, what he did, what his, what his thing was? Um, and my, both of my children were very bright, no idea who Bundy was. I said, ask some of your friends. Mm. Um, and for the most part, nobody really knew who he was a few. Yeah. a serial killer, but they didn't know his, his MO, uh, or what he was about. And for me, Bundy, you, you can't overstate the lessons of Ted, Ted Bundy enough particularly if you're a father of daughters, of college-age mm -hmm. daughters, you know, because he was an attractive, 
white guy uh, who was an ideal boyfriend to his girlfriend and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, wonderful surrogate father to to the, the daughter of his girlfriend. And he had friends. Nobody could imagine that this charming, attractive white guy, you know, uh, could do these horrible things. And in my, you know, we want to believe that serial killers are monsters all the time because then they're easy to identify and then you can avoid them. The truth is the people who do evil in the world are usually the people you least expect and most often trust. And so for me, doing Ted Bundy wasn't giving a platform to a killer. It was telling, dissecting the story of how he evaded justice for so long because everyone kept giving him a pass. And the message to my daughters and to that generation, which is why I chose somebody as trustworthy as Zac Efron to play the role, you know, and somebody as revered as Zac, because to, mm-hmm. to most, to that demographic, here's a guy who could do no wrong. They feel like they right. know him, you know, but yes. no, this guy, this guy did terrible things, not Zach, but Bundy. And the mm-hmm. lesson that the people, you know, just because somebody is charming and trust, seemingly trustworthy, it doesn't mean you should trust them. That is a message I wanted my daughters and her generation to have. So to me, the Bundy tapes wasn't giving a platform to a killer, you know, but to the, you know, to the larger question, you know, true crime comes in all shapes and sizes. Some of it yes. is highly irresponsible. And mm-hmm. for me, I only pick a story where I, you know, where I'm, I feel like I have some, something to say, you know, with Elisa right. Land, it was about the stigma of mental illness. It was about the, you know, the, the dangers of jumping to conclusions based on circumstantial evidence. It was about the dangers of cyberbullying. You know, yes. all those things are wrapped in a story that, unfortunately, we live in a world where there's a lot of competition for our, our eyeballs. And so you can't just yes. put out a, a thesis statement. You have to make it in a way that people are going to watch it and be entertained, right. quotation marks, but. That that's right. Yes. And, uh, I, I do think that that is, and that reason for why people watch true crime, I do believe is an important one that people are watching true crime sometimes to learn lessons for their life. Like you said, a lot of these criminals, I think what grabs people and gets their attention for these types of programs that are labeled true crime is, oh, that person looks like somebody who could be living in my neighborhood. This person reminds me of a boyfriend I once had, you know, and I think while there's a salacious quality to it, there is this underlying lesson to be learned. And I think your docuseries is much more developed in that way than, like you said, there's a huge spectrum and there are many, many important lessons to be learned in The Vanishing at Cecil Hotel. But what I really appreciated about the arc of the show is that at the end, Yes, Elisa is a victim, quote unquote, of tragedy, but she's not a victim the same way that I think some people thought she might have been. Maybe she was murdered. Maybe it was even a paranormal uh, happenstance where she was killed by evil spirits. But she was a victim of our world's view on individuals who have to deal with mental illness, even their own self-stigma, but certainly community stigma. But also, in a way, she was a victim of institutional neglect. And I remember this very specific thing uh, during the program where the hotel manager at the time said, well, she did this really weird thing one time. I saw her in the hotel and she says, I'm crazy. And so is L.A. You know, and there were some other odd things like she was putting up posts on her essentially her roommates um, beds and things like that, telling them to get out. But none of it was really that significant enough 
in a hotel that was in the middle of Skid Row. The police are overwhelmed. You know, it's 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 understandable why she didn't jump to do something and intervene at that time and add to that the individualistic values of America. We kind of tend to leave people alone and mind our own business more so than maybe some other cultures just as a general rule. All of that kind of culminated in why things happened the way they did and contributed to that. So I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit and just this idea of it's all of these other factors that we need to be paying attention to to prevent other stories like Elisa Lamb's story. Yeah, well, you know, the key for me too, I agree with everything you just said. So, but the, and the key is that neighborhood, you know, it yeah. just was not unusual for somebody to be, you know, acting strangely in that neighborhood. And right. this is downtown Los Angeles, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, at one point it was the place you went if you were going to Los Angeles, you know, at the start, the Cecil was a gleaming new business hotel where the, you know, travelers by train would, you know, arrive in a, you know, nice looking city and go to a, their business traveler hotel. And what the decades have done to that neighborhood and some of the policies in Los Angeles from just emptying out mental health facilities and sending those people to, to Skid Row without any support, uh, dropping off homeless people there, this whole policy of containment where it's like literally the policy was to drive all people who are down on their luck or uh, have mental health issues to a certain part of town and let them fend for themselves. I mean, it's just horrifying, you know? So, right. uh, so, so her, her condition didn't, didn't stick out to people. And I think greatly, yeah. you know, if, you know, if she was staying at the Beverly Hills hotel, uh, you know, I think the reaction would have been much quicker and speedier and maybe things would have been different, you know, I mean, not, not that she could have afforded the Beverly Hills hotel. I'm just saying that it's just right. a very different neighborhood and Los Angeles really needs to deal with that skid row. It's, 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 uh, it's an embarrassment, you know? Um, right. so yeah, so those, those, those things were, you know, very important to bring out in this story. And I really do appreciate how sensitive you have been in treating Elisa's story and really showing her as a multidimensional individual rather than just this mystery to be solved. And I do think that that's why so many people feel like this story resonates with them. There's that personal connection. There's all these blogs that are still available today and you can yeah. really get a sense of what she was struggling with. And I think a lot of people who have encountered mental illness in their lives, either in themselves or in a loved one, they can see themselves or their loved ones in those writings. And while there is this huge, um, I think there's a huge wave of support, of course, for her family. I think people have been very, very supportive. I, I also think that maybe some of the previous coverages of this story have made it so much more salacious. And here we're really talking about no, this is somebody who struggled with her own illness. And if she stopped taking the medications, there's reasons for that. And it's not uncommon at all that people would do that when they have that self-stigma and they're hoping that things will work out better. And also add to the fact that when sometimes people are in a manic episode, their voices are telling them to stop taking the medications. You know, essentially they're having a paranoid episode and their voices are saying the medications are going to kill you, they're poison. And that's happened to a number of my patients. But what do you want people to ultimately walk away with after watching this program. And as a follow-up, what do you hope to do with future installments of this series? Good question. Um, I think I want people to walk away with um, all the things we've talked about, that um, 
you know, to write off somebody's tragic accident, you know, as a demonic possession or a haunting of a, of a hotel is actually disrespectful to the victim and, and yeah. a victim of a tragedy or a crime deserves the truth. And the show kind of unpacks that. Um, it takes care to take you on the same journey that the web sleuths went on. So you can see yourself, mm-hmm. you know, some people have misinterpreted this as, well, he's just, you know, guilty. Uh, he's as guilty as the web sleuths for misleading the audience. No, I'm taking you on a journey where you experience the story and the coincidences the way the web sleuths did so that you, you can test your own within yourself gee, would you be jumping to these conclusions? Mm-hmm. Most likely many of us would. When you, mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you encounter somebody like Morbid and his lyrics, you know, was, were you starting to believe that maybe he's responsible? And then to find out the truth at the end is a way of testing your own uh, perceptions because I think everyone needs to understand a, there's, a hum, there's, a, there's a built-in human need to believe in something beyond the physical world and how things operate and to give meaning to our lives. And sometimes we falsely grab at these straws that seem to have some meaning mm-hmm. and uh, I, unpacking that and experiencing it in the way that the web sleuths experience it only to then come back around and dissect it. So people really understand what happened and what didn't happen. You know, that is the arc of the show because I want people to come away with, all of these conclusions that cyberbullying is not a good idea because unless you have, you know, unless it's a, you know, this whole trial by Twitter, you know, in mm-hmm. culture we live in is just to me unacceptable. You need, there's a reason that you go to a court of law to, you know, and even yes. that sometimes doesn't work. Some, you know, right. there's, there's an epidemic <laughs> of wrongful conviction, but you shouldn't be, you know, jumping to conclusions uh, about these kinds of things. And that if somebody is acting oddly, you know, I want people to have much more human compassion for somebody who's yes. acting oddly to understand that maybe, you know, intervening might provide, uh, you know, a different outcome for that person. So all the things in this season, all the things we talked about next season, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure yet what we want people to take away because we're just starting. I can't tell you where we're going. Uh, but it's a place, another interesting place uh, that is known for some crimes. Um, and we will, I'm sure, similarly kind of turn it on its head and, and explode some stereotypes, hopefully. <laughs> awesome. Well, I can't wait to see the next installment, but I'm going to go back and rewatch this show again because my family is so obsessed with this show as well. And they've been asking me all kinds of really specific questions about what one person said. And right now I'm like, okay, you know what? I might have to go back and really understand what that was so I can explain it to them. So thank you for providing us so much food for thought in this wonderful project and all of your work and for spending time today with me today, despite your busy schedule. Um, Tell me where people can find you. I know you have a website. I know you have an Instagram. Where is the best place for people to follow you? Uh, Instagram, uh, you know, I never, I never, I never kind of got into Facebook or whatever. So I, I, (laughs) somebody, an assistant of mine once set up a Facebook account, but I never look at it or use it. Or so some people go to my Facebook and like, I, I literally haven't been on my Facebook. So, so if you reach (laughs) out via Facebook and I don't answer you, it's because I, I literally, it's like, 
just not something I do. But Instagram is uh, at Joe Berlinger Films. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Joe Berlinger, and uh, my website is JoeBerlingerFilms.com or Radical Media, which is a company that I'm a partner in in New York. Fantastic. And thank you again so much for the work that you do. And thanks to Netflix as well for their sensitivity in handling all of this. This is a very, very complicated story. And there's so many different themes. We could talk forever, but um, I will let you go now, Joe. Thank you so much again for being here today. I kept you for hours and hours doing uh, our (laughs) interview. So like it's you're making it easy on me. But uh, Uh. I I appreciate I appreciate uh, uh, you asking me to do your show and uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Judy. Wow. That was a fascinating conversation. Don't you just love Joe? He's amazing. On next week's show, I'm excited to get to all of your questions about the Elisa Lamb case. So if you have questions you want answered, please DM me at Dr. Judy Ho on Instagram. And remember, I will also be offering my supercharged tips on how to best safeguard the mental health of yourself and the people in your life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I do read all of your reviews, and if you leave me one, I might just shout you out on a future episode. You should also check out at Stage 29 Podcast because we have an amazing exclusive podcast family full of great shows. And if you follow them, you'll be able to find out more about the programs we have to offer. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.